Welcome to the audio podcast, the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. We continue our multi-access worship both online in our recently renovated sanctuary. Sunday morning service is in person at 11 a.m. and we are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message. Dear God, help us this morning to hear a word from you. Help me to speak it in spite of all my failings, in spite of my own weakness. I'd let your spirit speak through or even against and beyond me. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So did those scripture readings get you in the holiday spirit? (laughs) This is a function of our liturgical incongruence with culture, right? This is Advent, not actually Christmas season. It's not a time of celebration, but of expectation. It's a season in which we rehearse the waiting of our forebears in faith anticipating the advent, the arrival of our salvation. So the texts that we just read, that we read during the season, draw us back into the spiritual practice of tarrying, of waiting in expectation, knowing that God will arrive, that some great act will be made manifest, but it has not yet occurred. So I want to take us into that story. I want to remind us of the world that the writers of Scripture occupied and properly set the stage for Jesus' arrival. And this is going to require some historical legwork. And I hope that doesn't bore the crap out of everybody in here. (laughs) I started with these texts, which fit into the genre of prophecy, which are expressions of messianic expectation which are so disturbingly shot through with expressions of bloody revenge fantasy because I want to understand the conditions that produced these images. I want to understand the dynamics that led people to articulate their wildest fantasies in terms of bloodlust. I want to know why Christmas or the arrival of the Christ would, for some, coincide with such horrifying scenes. And then I want to understand how Jesus fits, or ultimately does not fit, into these visions. So let's see if we can get there together. We have to begin with the Exodus, which is 1,200 years before Jesus by the biblical timeline. The Egyptian context is where that nascent burgeoning Israelite identity is supposed to have been formed. Not yet a fully-fledged nation, the people who were enslaved by Egypt shared a common ancestry and a common struggle under Egyptian power, but little else really held them together. That old promise to Abraham had lain dormant for far too long. There was no Torah, no law that could organize communal life. 
There were no collective experiences beyond the subjection that they experienced together. What really joins these people is coming. It's the call to freedom and the journey toward that promise. In some sense, that's true of all people of faith who claim a connection with these peoples. What joins us together is the call to freedom and the journey toward that promise. You might have noticed, maybe, I mean, the interchangeability of, of Hebrew and Israelite in biblical texts. So are those words really synonymous? Why two words and not just the one? The term Israelite connotes nationality. It suggests that the people referred to have some coherent sense of identity, some sense of self. And was this true of the people suffering slavery in Egypt? Well, to speak in historical terms, there is no record of anyone called Israel or Israelites living in Egypt in the late Bronze Age when the Exodus is supposed to have happened. There isn't a word that memorializes the existence of any group called Israel living within Egypt's borders or serving as slaves or the backbone of their economy. The Egyptians wrote a lot, famously so, yet they never mention anything that would corroborate the Exodus story. There are no archaeological remains that suggest anything like a mass exodus of people from Egypt during that time period, and there would be remains if there had been one. By biblical estimates, it's multiple millions of people who would have been out in the desert who would have found something. You might see little articles, clickbait articles, like, you know, chariot wheels at the bottom of the Red Sea. Uh, it's not real. <laughs> Those don't exist. So it seems like there was no exodus, speaking in purely historical terms. But here's where the word Hebrew figures in. There are letters, the Amarna letters, between a pharaoh and other government officials regarding some group called the Apiru. The Apiru were brigands, or land pirates, bandits who caused Egypt a great deal of trouble. They roved the open spaces and accosted caravans and disrupted trade. And the word Apiru bears striking etymological resemblance to the word Hebrew. Even in English, we can kind of see the connection, but it's even closer in the original languages. And when we compare the context and content of the Amarna letters with the biblical book of Judges, when the bands of loosely connected but seemingly ethnically related groups of people exist in the land, we see a, a similarity and perhaps historical record of the Hebrews in the Samarna letter. A little later, we get the Merneptah Stela, which folks might know about, which holds a, a passing reference to the name Israel. It's not clear what kind of group this name refers to. Is it a family? Is it one of these bands of brigands, a nation, a state? Do the loosely connected Hebrews at some point become Israel, as their sense of identity solidifies into a coherent peoplehood. There's an historical murkiness here. 
There are threads that connect with some data we have from the Bible, but the material record doesn't map cleanly onto the story that Scripture tells. But the next step for the Bible is the conquest of Canaan. The Israelites, however they come into being, show up to the land of Canaan and they are supposed to exterminate every living thing. Except the trees, God says. Kill everything except the trees. They're supposed to set everything to the ban, to devote it all to God through holy war, to kill every man, woman, child, and animal, and they do so to the best of their abilities. This is the means by which the promised land is secured, how its borders are determined, how the ancient state of Israel comes into being through the genocide and ethnic cleansing of the population that lived there before them. There are still fundamentalists who appeal to this moment, this bloody historical moment to justify contemporary claims to the land. They actually say that these ancient attempts to exterminate Canaanites, Canaanite peoples like the Philistines, right, which is where we get the word Palestine, is what gives them the right to do the same thing over again today. The whole story in their mind is of a people called from Babylon through Egypt to inherit a land that others were living in through violence. That's not the most morally compelling case. But if this is the mythology, what's the actual historical reality? It's difficult to reconstruct too. But what we can say is that the conquest as scripture narrates it never happened. All the places that they say they destroyed show no signs of destruction in the eras in which they are supposed to have been conquered, and some never experienced anything like that in any era. In reality, what seems to have happened, and this is actually a much better case for modern claims to the land, at least the ethnic ones, if not the national ones, is that some of the people who came to understand themselves as Israelites grew organically out of Canaan itself. Having lived in the land for hundreds or thousands of years, Others came from the Sinai Desert. Some came from Babylon. Some even came from Ethiopia. And what connected them were not common material histories or shared ancestries, but this new religion called Yahwism. Under this tent, as it were, their stories then start to intertwine each of them coming from their own place with their own set of myths, fashioned into a coherent national mythology that takes shape in the text that we now have. The problem was, in both historical and mythological terms, there were still other people in the land. People who lived there as long as anyone, and long before this new group started vying for supremacy, and who didn't accept their religion or their national project. Some scholars suggest that the biblical myths of conquest, which, as we've seen, are not historically accurate, were fabricated as political tools meant to justify the contemporaneous extermination and ethnic cleansing of the people who posed a threat to their supremacy and the singularity of their national aspirations. In other words, Ancient Israel was not hoping to be a multi-ethnic, plurireligious democracy. 
They wanted a single state in which they were the majority and did their best to kill and expel anyone who threatened this arrangement. In many places in scripture, there's this nearly fetishistic fascination with not mingling with any non-Israelites. So ancient Israel, if it ever existed as a unified kingdom, the jury is out on that point, lasted 80 years, according to the Bible. Founded at about 1000 BCE, it splits in 920 into a northern and a southern kingdom. The north is called Israel, the south is called Judah, separate kings, separate legal systems, and religious systems characterized these neighboring nations. And then in 722 BCE, the northern kingdom, Israel, 198 years after its founding, was destroyed by the Assyrians. In 586 BCE, the southern kingdom of Judah was destroyed by Babylonians. And the Israelites and Judahites were scattered again from Babylon to Egypt, with a few remaining in the land. The Persians then conquered Babylon and let some Judahites return and rebuild the temple in 516. Then the Greeks came to power and desecrated the temple with pig's blood and tried unsuccessfully to suppress a violent Maccabean rebellion. Jewish control then prevailed for a few years until the Romans came to power and occupied a territory they called Syria-Palestine, the land of Judea, among its provinces. So I just condensed a thousand years of history into just a few sentences, and in so doing, I eclipsed the suffering of hundreds of thousands, extended over generations that were killed and displaced by imperial powers. Hundreds of years of contention and brutal war set the stage for Jesus' arrival. People of all ethnic groups had been terrorized and killed and driven from the land. Non-Jewish people were expelled by Jewish folks, like in the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, breaking up families and sending non-Jewish women and children to die in the desert and pulling the hair out of the men who stayed. Jewish folks were kidnapped and exiled by invading armies and slaughtered for merely keeping kosher. Their every attempt at life was constantly being strangled by occupying forces. People of all ethnicities were killed en masse for not submitting to the will of their imperial overlords, be it Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, or Romans. And so does this history, this state of disorder and antagonism and oppression and pain, the Messiah would be the one to clean up the mess. The Messiah would recalibrate the political power of the land. The Messiah would end the hostilities between Jewish folks and Samaritans and Syrophoenicians and the other ethnicities living in the land. And some thought that this would occur through a newfound sympathy for one another. But others, like in the text we read, imagined apocalyptic violence and the reinstatement of a purified ethnostate belonging to only one of its historic peoples. This is the world of Advent, ours and theirs. 
a people poised between persecution and persecuting, await a decisive act of God. Had even given up hope completely. But others were waiting for something radical, something world-changing and even world-ending. The Messiah would come and the world would be made anew. Now, I don't want to give the end of the Advent story away. I don't want to tell you what happens. We'll find out at Christmas. But as we station ourselves here, alongside a people who expect an act of God to resolve questions of land, identity, violence, and oppression, what is our hope? Is our Advent hope the blood-soaked robe of a conquering king? wet with the stolen life of our enemies? Is Christmas for us the, the reestablishment or protection of forms of exclusivist, supremacist power? Or could Christmas be the abolition of that kind of power? Could we at least hope for that? Could we hope that Christmas will be God showing up to prove to us that the way into which we are called is not the way of nation-states clashing over territory, but of peace on earth? Not the peace of the status quo, of empires and colonial powers having their way without resistance, but a peace established as an antithesis to that way of doing business as the world ended and remade, as a beyond in which the devastating rationalizations of the crucifiers no longer have any hold over our hearts. We stand at an historic precipice, waiting on God, and what is shaping our hope? Is it a thirst for blood and power? Will that be the kind of God who shows up into a contemporary context not unlike the ancient one? Will God show up as the conqueror whose robe is dipped in blood? Will God hold our hands covered in the blood of 10,000 innocents and kiss them and thank us for our virtue? Or will we encounter something altogether different? Perhaps God will be a child. Perhaps God will be the one hunted. Perhaps our bloody hopes will turn out to be our deepest sin. Our desire for the violent maintenance of a status quo will be the very force that kills God. We'll see. But until then, I recommend repositioning your hope away from the promises of empire, of state-making, of supremacisms and exclusivity. In some ways, I feel like a parent who knows what you're getting for Christmas, and I don't want you to be disappointed. I want you to have a good Christmas. I want you to get what you hoped for, and I don't want you to be crestfallen if you discover that God is not on the side of imperialist war-making. Rather, I want you to know joy and peace, and love, if you discover that God arrives to lift up the powerless and cast down the mighty, to feed the hungry and send the rich away with nothing, which is what we may find 
a young Palestinian Jewish girl prophesying. And that may be our future. That may be what Christmas really means. So until then, take care with your hope. Consider what guides it. Consider the world that it wishes. Is the world that we hope for the world that God is going to make? I guess we'll see. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you were fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on firstchurchbrooklyn.org. We provide multi-access worship options both in person and online Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. We are live in the sanctuary, as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org and the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on both online and in-person worship. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.